morning, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation. We'll be in chapter 1 today. So it's good to be here today. Feels a little different, uh, but I'm excited to be here. It kind of feels like coming home. In fact, all throughout sabbatical, my kids are like, Dad, can we go to Timberline? Dad, can we go to Timberline? Dad, can we go to Timberline? In fact, we, we, we almost came to the church picnic. But someone in my family, which I will not say was my wife, said, no, we're on sabbatical. We can't go to the church picnic. Um, so... Um, I have, a, I have three introductions today, because uh, I was like, well, I haven't been here for a while, so we, it's not how I normally do it, so if you're, you've been here for a while and you don't know me now, uh, I don't normally have three intros, but, but today we'll have three introductions. Uh, so intro one is I just want to thank, thank you. Uh, as a church, you've encouraged, you've enabled my family and I to go on sabbatical these last uh, three months, and it was incredible, it was great, it was refreshing, it was relaxing. Um, and just to, I know I could name many, many, many people, but especially um, our office staff, uh, Rachel and Raymond, right up here in the front, uh, they were amazing in the way they did so much. And then uh, Ozan and Chris, who's Chris is not here today, one of our other elders, uh, just a great job in not only preaching, but shepherding and doing so many things uh, just during my absence. Without any one of these four, especially uh, that sabbatical, would not have been possible. And so I want to thank you to you all, especially, but all of you all have greatly contributed to that. Um, so I want to thank you. We, we truly have felt your love for us, uh, for me, and for my family. And, and I know. That your love ultimately for us is grounded in God and his church. And so it, it is sweet to know uh, that your love truly just is a work of God's grace in you. And it is abundant and extravagant. And it is an honor to, to come back here. And we feel blessed to serve uh, and, and to shepherd here. So want to say thank you to that. Uh, intro two. That was the first one. We had, uh, we had the opportunity to go to quite a few other churches during um, our sabbatical period, and, and I'll say this, it wasn't the greatest experience. Um, now, I will say, many of you know, several years ago, uh, my family and I, we went to Missoula, Bab uh, Missoula in Montana, where there was a pastor who was going on sabbatical. I preached for a few weeks, Chris Ozon, or Chris Ozon, Chris Gorman, I'm like merging you all into one person. Uh, Chris Gorman preached for a few weeks. Some other NAB guys uh, preached for a few weeks. Uh, since then, uh, that pastor has retired. They got a new pastor, and we were doing this road trip, and we planned it so we could be there on a Sunday, and that was an amazing time. The gospel was being preached there. There was joy. There was life. There was really, really good things that were happening, um, but in our, our time here, it wasn't great. And I don't want to go into all the details and, and things, but um, we were hoping to be able to go and really be encouraged by the other churches and the preaching of the gospel and know, man, we got other brothers who just love the gospel and are preaching it, um, and, and we didn't see that a lot. In fact, I would say morality was preached, but the gospel wasn't. There was many services we sat in where the words cross, Jesus, grace, gospel, and sin were not used. Um, the theology of songs was, was at times lukewarm at best. The focus on the church, the focus of the church was on the individual. It wasn't on God. It wasn't on the Son. And it wasn't on the corporate gathering of the bride of Christ. But it was on a personal individualistic experience. One church was, it was so horrifying that they offered communion. My wife is going to get on me for lecture. You're not supposed to share all these things. Um, we didn't even partake of communion. Uh, we didn't feel like we could in good conscience. Um, I go on, but the point is, 2 Timothy 4.3 is a very present and real reality, which says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I know that's around us. 
It's everywhere. It's not unique to the Northwest or Thurston County. But I think my eyes are open to just maybe how much at times too. I think people are very much settling for their coffee cup theology while their Bibles remain on their nightstands full of dust. That's what became very, very evident. But I, I don't say this so we'd be discouraged. And I certainly don't say it so we would feel built up or elevated in any such way. But I say it for three reasons. One, I personally have been all the, encouraged all the more that we need to preach passionately and zealous the gospel of Jesus Christ every single week. Every week, we need the gospel. And not only during the, the corporate gatherings, but every day we need it. Um, I want to encourage you in this. Share the gospel with everyone, even believers. Do not assume because they attend somewhere on a Sunday morning that they're Christian. Just don't assume it. And, and, and to some sense, we could always say that. We know that not everyone who gathers with the church is a Christian. But after hearing just what exactly they're listening to, I wonder even more at times. So I just want to encourage you, share the gospel with all those you encounter. And number three, we need to be even all the more intentional in raising up men and women who will go out and, and plant gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying churches. And so we need to make sure that's even more intentional in our mission and how what we are doing here at Timberline. And so... Uh, I was hoping to be encouraged, in a sense, by what was happening, and yet by God's providence. We were encouraged, even though what's not happening, in large part, but what then God was solidifying in our own heart and convictions that we have and convictions that need to be embraced all the more tightly. Uh, which kind of brings us into introduction number three, which is going to move us more into the text in Revelation. Uh, John in Revelation, he's writing to seven churches, and he's writing so that they would persevere in the faith. Some of the churches he's writing to have fallen into apathy. You can read about that in chapters two and three. Some are currently facing persecution and suffering, but soon all of them will face trials, will face suffering and potentially martyrdom. Um, now, many people stay away from the book of Revelation uh, because it can be challenging, and there certainly are challenges, but this book invites us to read it. Do you know that? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and keep, meaning obey, what is written. He's inviting us. If you hear this and you obey, there's blessings in that. So this book is meant to be heard, meant to be applied today. This book is meant to awaken Christians who are sleeping this book is, is meant to awaken us that there is a dragon that wants to destroy us. This book is meant to strengthen the faith of suffering Christians into a rod of steel that will not bend under suffering and trials. This book is meant to show that Jesus Christ is our king and he is in control at all times and that he's coming again for his church. And so in these opening verses of Revelation, John wants us to know that if we're to stand firm in our faith and not be distracted and fall prey to the lies in this world, we need to know the God of the Bible and the gospel that he's given us. And so today, that's what we're going to do. The title is God and his gospel. We're just going to look at God and the gospel that he's given us over the next few weeks. We're just going to look at different, uh, a few different passages that God has used um, in, during the sabbatical in my life, especially just to drive home truths and convictions that I have and that we share as a body of believers in this church. So number one today, we're going to look at just God and the gospel, the reason we're here, the reason we're saved, the reason we have hope. And so I want to invite you uh, to stand as we read our passage today, we stand here when we read God's word because we just want to even give ourselves a visible reminder that this is God's word coming with his authority and is fully and absolutely sufficient to accomplish all of his purposes. So we're going to do verses four through eight. Here we go, verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father, God, I thank you for this passage today on how you so reveal who you are, Father, Son, Spirit. And you've sent a gospel that saves us from our sins by your blood so that we would live with you for all of eternity. God, I pray that as we walk through this text, that our hearts together in this room would be joined together and they would burst forth in joy and praise because of who you are and what you have done for us. God, you are good and you are gracious. God, increase our hope today. May we be all the more confident in the salvation that you have given us. May we look forward to return of your son Jesus, knowing exactly what waits us, everlasting life in your glorious presence. God, if any of us are slumbering in our faith right now, I pray that you would use this text by the power of your spirit to awaken us, that there are very real dangers in this world that want to attack us, but you give grace and you give peace that we would be strengthened. And so God, I pray we know these truths today. In your blessed and wonderful name, Jesus, amen. amen. I invite you to sit. Verse four. We just got to start right there. We're going to make our way through, and we are told that God gives grace. He says, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. He's saying, grace and peace is for the church. Do you know that? God is an everlasting fount of grace and peace for the church. Adam and Eve, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, they reject the very blessings of God, but now through Jesus Christ, the greater Adam, he has come to save us that we would experience all the blessing, all the peace, all the joy, all the grace that comes from God. But what we know is that the gift is only as, give, as good as the giver. And so John, in these opening verses, wants us to exactly know who is this God that gives us grace and peace. And so in verses 4 and 5, John's going to give us a glimpse of our God. He's going to say he's Father, he's Son, and he's Spirit. The Bible teaches us that we serve a Trinitarian God, three persons, one essence. We're not going to pack all the ins and outs of the Trinity today or attempt to do that. But, but we do need to know something. What distinguishes Christianity from every other religion is our God. You don't have to come up with anything else. Just start with God, and you have something different than every other religion. Because there's no religion that believes in a triune God. Because every religion makes a God after their own image. But when we come to the Christian faith, we we encounter a God who's made us in his image. He's Trinitarian in nature, so we're going to walk through just who he is. So first we begin with God the Father. It says, who is and who was and who is to come. And we're going to unpack this more as we get to the end of the sermon. But it just in the very beginning, God is eternal. He's outside of time. He's the one who he stands behind, behind all other causes. He's always existed. He will always exist. He has no beginning and no end. When you go and you begin in the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, we start with God. We go all the way through the Bible and it ends that we are living in the eternal presence of God for all of eternity. It begins and ends with God. He is, he was, and he is to come. Number two, we come to God the Spirit, where he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, when we come into apocalyptic literature, the word, uh, the number seven 
doesn't just simply mean seven. It's often referring to something symbolic, and seven is used for perfection and completeness, which is why when he writes to the seven churches in Asia, it's really not only to those churches, but it's to all churches at all times. And so here we have to the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is a reference to complete Holy Spirit who goes out from the throne room of God to carry out the very perfect purposes of our God. And then we come to God the Son and everything just slows down. Because he's going to zero in on who Christ is because Christ has come to earth. That he would die on a cross for us so he wants to zero in that we would understand who the Son of Man, the Son of God is. And so he gives us three things that we need to know about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who left heaven, came to earth, that he would live a perfect, holy, obedient life to God. He fulfilled all Old Testament prophecies. The word witness is where we get the word martyr. And so when we have, he's the faithful witness. He was faithful even to the point of death, that he would lay down his life on the cross. We need to know, Jesus' life was not taken from him. I don't believe that he was simply overpowered. John 10, 17 clearly says that he lays down his life. No one takes it from him. He has the authority to lay it down, and he has the authority to take it back up. He intentionally purposely came, that he would lay down his life. Number two, he's the firstborn of the dead. He doesn't stay dead. Isn't that good news? He's the faithful witness. He does all that he was called to do, told to do, lays down his life, and then he rises again. I was sharing the gospel the other day with a guy, and he said, you know, I I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe he's a historical guy. I believe he did some really great things. And he said, but that's all that I think that he is. And so I said, unless he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, then that changes everything. He's not a good guy if he doesn't rise from the dead. Because as C.S. Lewis said, if he made the claims that he did, according to scripture, he'd either be a liar or a lunatic. But if he rises from the grave, he's the son of God. And it changes everything. He's not just a good man. He's the perfect son of God who came to save us from our sins. And notice that it says he's the firstborn of the dead. What does it mean that he's the firstborn? Well, it means that he's not the only one who's going to rise. He's the first, but there will be others. All those who believe in him will also rise from the grave, just as he did, which is what Paul talks about all throughout 1 Corinthians 15. He said, well, if Jesus rose, we also will rise from the grave. That's why we read that Jesus, when he goes to the grave and he rises again, he conquered death. If you just skim over to chapter, or chapter 1, verse 18, notice what Jesus holds in his hands. He says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. To hold the keys to something, like I have the keys to my house, which means I own my house. I have the authority of the things in my house. You don't have keys in my house. It doesn't matter what walls you think my my walls should be painted. I choose. I have the key. Well, my wife chooses. And then I paint them. Well, actually, she does the painting. I don't like painting. You choose your own colors to the keys that go to your house. The keys signify ownership, dominion. Jesus says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I own them. And all who believe in me, though they die, will rise again. That's the hope that we have. Now just think about who this is being written to. Christians who are suffering, Christians who at some point in the very near future will be stuck on stakes, put in the ground, and used to light the streets of Rome. They'll be crucified out on the hills, made a mockery. They'll be fed to the animals in the arena. And here we're being reminded, oh, you may die here on this earth, but death does not have 
the last word because you believe in the one who holds the keys of death and haste. You believe in the one who has given you eternal life. And so when you die, you are guaranteed to rise again in his presence. Because Jesus rose, we know that we will rise. We'll come back to that more in a moment. Number three, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Apostles' Creed, every week, every week we go over the gospel. Sometimes people say, why do you go over the Apostles' Creed every week? Because it's the gospel. And we rehearse it. Because it's an amazing way for your kids to have it memorized within like two times of hearing it. And for us, a little bit longer if you're older. But in the Apostles' Creed, we read that after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he sits on the throne. His throne is above all thrones. His throne is above every throne, every power, every government, everything in this world. In fact, this is what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says. Paul writes, Jesus was raised from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but in the one to come. Meaning, forever, Jesus rules supreme. No one rivals his rule. Jesus is the king. Next week we'll be in chapter 1, verse 20 through, or 12 through 20 of this same uh, chapter, and we'll be looking specifically at the rule and the reign of Jesus. But I want you to remember, we're in Revelation. Revelation is called apocalyptic literature. The word apocalyptic just simply means to reveal what is hidden. And so what, what the readers in the first century are going to see, and what you and I are going to see often in this world is that it doesn't look like Jesus rules. In fact, it may look like there are tyrannical governments and dictators are wielding evil at their women doing whatever it is that they want. It might look that everything is chaotic and it's becoming more chaotic, kind of like dominoes. You knock over one, it just goes more and more and more and more and more and more. And the chaos will just keep going and you're going, does it ever stop? And so right here, John is pulling back the curtain, giving us heaven's perspective, letting us see what the real reality is. And he's saying, oh, I know that it looks like Caesar's in control. But Jesus sits on the throne. And he's using every government, every power, everything on this earth and everyone to accomplish his purposes so that he will one day return and gather his church. He's giving us heaven's perspective at this moment, which is the true reality of this world. It's not chaotic. It looks chaotic. But there is a king, and he's so sovereign and so wise that he's ruling over every single element in this earth at all times. The breeze that moves the branches right now, the fluttering of the, the hummingbird's wings, everything is under his perfect control. And so while it looks evil, he's turning to the readers, and he's turning to the church today, he says, oh, but no, there is a king, and he rules over everything, and a day is coming where he will return. Now before we go on, I want you to notice that there's a pattern that John just gave us here also when we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus lived a faithful, holy life, obedient to the point of death where he died, suffering at the cross, and then was glorified. You see the theme? Suffering precedes glory. You can track it from Genesis to Revelation. Suffering precedes glory. And so the truth is, that John wants the church to know, that he wants you and I to know, that just as our king came and he suffered, and because he suffered, he now is at the right hand of God, on the throne of God, ruling over all things, glorified, he says, and all those who trust in him, though we suffer, 
will also be glorified. He's turning to the church, and just through the pattern of Jesus, which he will even more expound as you walk through the book of Revelation, saying, you can endure. You can endure the suffering, the pain, the trials, and even martyrdom. Because for the Christian, suffering and death will not have the last word. So whatever you're going through right now, I want to encourage you, I want to remind you of the truth for the Christian. Suffering, pain, trials, persecution, death does not have the last word. God actually uses it for our good, for advancement of his kingdom, for for the refinement of our weight, or refinement of our faith, so that we'd be prepared for his return. In fact, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Our present affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So the prosperity gospel says suffering is because of a lack of faith, but that's a lie. Because all throughout scripture, we see Jesus. We see apostles. We see disciples. We see those who follow after God were suffering. So we see suffering as a tool chosen by God to accomplish his purposes. And one thing we know is suffering doesn't have the last word because what it does, it results in the glory for the believer and ultimately the glory and praise of our God and Father, Jesus Christ. So all we've gotten through is John has just simply reminded us grace and peace is coming. Who is it coming from? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth earth. This is our God. This is who we worship. This is why we're here. This is why we gather. Some of you are military, so some of you are going to move more often than, than some of us will. So at some point, you'll be, you'll be looking for another church. You'll be moving to a different state. And maybe some of you are here today, and you're going, okay, we're, we're new to the area or whatever reason. You're here, and you're looking for a church. What you want to do is when you look and you come to a church, it says, do I behold God? When they preach, when they sing, when all the things take place, do I see God? Do I taste and see the beauty and the glory of God? It's not about you and me. It's not about you coming, feeling good about yourself, and then leaving. We want you to feel good, but the ultimate goal of why we gather is so that you and I would see this God, that we would know him, that our hearts would be full of praise, that we would burst forth in praising this God, no matter what trial and situation we are going through. Let that be your criteria. Not does it have the programs, not does it have certain things. Do they show God in all that they do? Because when we come, When you hear preaching, the purpose of preaching is to encounter God. That's why we're here. Through all of the things that we, through all the songs and the lyrics that we sing, ultimately it's about God because he's the one who's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so whether you're here today and you're looking, I I would ask you, put that as the standard. Does this church help me to know who God is and what he has done? Or there are a lot of other things in the way. So now John, after he's given us this vision of who our God is, Father, Son, Spirit, he wants, us, he wants to remind us of the gospel that he's given us. And so he wants us to see what has he done, and he's specifically going to zero in on the work of Jesus, and he's going to give us four truths. Which he's, I was not creative at all about the outline. I basically just said, well, what does the Bible say? And I, I just wrote it down. So super not creative this week. So I just pulled it all straight from verses 5 through 7. We're going to look at four things. Number one, Jesus loves us. Do you know that? I think we forget about it. To him who loves us. And you say, well, how does he love us? He left heaven. He set aside his glory. He came to earth as a man so he would one day die in your place and my place 
so we could be saved. This is what 1 John 4.10 says. In this is love. So he said, this, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How did he love us? He came and died for us. And Jesus didn't do this because we, we look good. He didn't do this because of the cars you drive, the house you have, because you're better than your neighbor or whoever. Because according to Romans 5, we're all ungodly, we're all enemies of God, and we're all sinners. None of us are worthy of God's grace, of his mercies, of his blessings. And so Jesus comes that he would die in our place so that we could experience the love of God. In fact, this is from a hymn that John Newton wrote. Uh, I have these words up here. It says, Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood and presents our souls to God. That's how he loves us. Not that we loved him, but that he has loved us. Number two, he frees us. So he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Before salvation, we were slaves to sin, citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and we're told in scripture that Satan was our master. Really, if, if you're an unbeliever, scripture's not really here to make you feel good about yourself. If you're like, think about that. I mean, it calls us enemies, it calls us ungodly, so Satan's our master. We're like, wait, is that really true? But when you come to know the truth of Scripture, you go, yeah, you either, you either serve God or you don't, and you serve Satan. And so what we read is Jesus came, and he dies in our place. This is the doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement, the fact that we all deserve punishment. Jesus takes our punishment, is our substitute, and he does that by dying on the cross and taking your sin, my sin, our punishment, and bearing it on himself. That's how he frees us, by his blood. No other way. So if you want to trust in anything other than the blood of Calvary, nothing can bring about forgiveness of your sins. It's crystal clear from Scripture. Now this doctrine is constantly under attack in the culture. It is said, this is cosmic child abuse. The father has forced the son to come down, and the son has to go to the cross and die. That is completely ludicrous and ridiculous. Because when you come into Scripture, you see the Father didn't force the Son. No, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. They work perfectly together at all times. The Father sends the Son, and the Son comes joyfully. In fact, do you remember Hebrews 12, too? For the joy set before him, he what? He endured the cross. That's not abuse. Abuse is doing things to people against their will. Jesus willingly has come to earth so he would die for you and for me. And just as a criminal deserves to be punished, so we deserve to be punished. God would not be worthy of praise, of glory, of honor if he simply said, oh, it doesn't matter that you don't worship me. It doesn't matter that you disobey my rules and commands. You can still have everything that you want. You, completely, you can live in complete and absolute rebellion of me, and yet I will give you everything. No one would want to live in a country that that's how they operated rules. No judge could stay on the bench if that's how he judged, and God would not be good or holy or just if that's how he operated. Our sins must be punished, and so Jesus came. Because you and I cannot pay that penalty. And so he suffers for you and for I. Number three, Jesus made us a kingdom, priests. This is a good truth. Are you aware that Jesus doesn't just save us? He doesn't like just save you and then leave you. One, we're told he adopts us into his family, that we become brothers and sisters. We're told that he brings us into the kingdoms as sons and daughters. And he makes us priests. Now, priests, that might be something kind of like, why are we priests? But this is something that we should actually be anticipating all the way from the beginning of the Bible. Because in Exodus 19.6, when God has brought Israel out of Egypt and he has them at Mount Sinai, he says, if you obey my commandments, I will make you, or if you keep my covenant, I will make you a kingdom and priests. And what does Israel do? 
They make a golden calf. And they disobey, and they disobey, and they rebel, and they reject, and they reject, and they reject, all to the point where God then says, I send you into exile. And then he sends Jesus. That Jesus would be the perfect son of God. That Jesus would come as the true Israel. That Jesus would accomplish all that God would require. That Jesus would then become, as we went through the book of Hebrews last year, the high priest. And all who believe in him would then become priests. Embody the true people of God. And what is a priest? A priest is one who has access to God. A priest worships God. And a priest tells others about God. You've been saved for a purpose. Every single one of you. We, might, we have different gifts, and it might look slightly different in the way we do things, but we've all been saved that we would have everlasting presence with God. And when you believe in Jesus, you experience that today because who dwells in you? The Holy Spirit, which is why 1 Corinthians 3 says, your body is the temple of God. And when we gather together like this, we form the temple of God because the body of believers is God's temple where he dwells. So we're priests. We experience God's presence. We worship him. We worship him as we come like this. And as Paul says, our lives are living sacrifices. Everything we do is to be an act of worship. And we tell others about God. And this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. Jesus, our king, shares his rule and his reign with us. If you were to flip over to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, at the end of the letter to Laodicea, he basically says, if you persevere, or he'll say, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he says, I make you a kingdom of priests. You're now family in the very house of God, but you're not like the weird stepchild that gets kind of pushed away, the strange stepchild. And you're not, you're not a servant in the slaves' quarters. No, he treats you as his own son. You share in the very glory and rule of the son, and you sit on the throne with the father and the king, Jesus, for all eternity. That's the future that we have. That's the kingdom that he holds out to us. We're adopted in the family of God, made priests to share in the rule and reign of God forever. There is no gospel like this. There's no gospel where God is so glorious and so gracious and so good that he shares of his own, his own glory with those who have been saved. Number four, Jesus, Jesus is coming again. Verse seven, John brings two Old Testament passages, one from Daniel 7, one from Zechariah 12. We're not going to specifically look at those today, but the point is Jesus comes as the Son of Man, and he will gather his church, and all who have rejected him will be punished. Amen. It is a joy. It is good to know that our King is returning. It is good to know that sin doesn't reign forever. It is good to know it comes to an end. And we're told that when he comes, every eye from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will see him. Those who have believed in him and persevered in faith will be gathered with him. But those who do not, we're told, will wail, will mourn for eternity under the unending wrath of God. So now, put yourself back into the first century. The church is hearing this. And John's saying, evil won't continue. Jesus really is ruling over everything. Doesn't look like it, but he is. And there's a day coming where all the evil, all the chaos, all the suffering will come to an end. And Jesus is the one who's received the kingdom of God. So he's coming. Have hope, press on. And so we have four responses, I think, that he gives us to, to what we've looked at so far. Number one, continue in the faith. Don't slumber and don't crumble under pressure. Don't become apathetic in your faith. There's a dragon out there who wants to kill you. Doesn't look like it. He woos you with the things of the world. But Revelation peels back the curtain and says, no, it's a dragon. And number two, Jesus is on the faith, is on the throne. So do not let your faith crumble under the pressures of this world because Jesus gives you grace and peace 
right now to stand firm. Number two, we're called to worship God. Did you, don't miss the fact that in verses 5 through 6, when he says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you, do you know what that's called? It's like a doxology right there. He just breaks out in praise. He talks about who God is, Father, Son, Spirit. He's talking about the gospel, and he just bursts out in praise. That is to be our response also. As we come into the very presence of God, every time that we open up this word, every time we gather as a group like this, and we go, this is our God, our hearts are to burst forth in praise. Number three, we should share the gospel. Because we know that there is a day coming when Jesus returns. And not everyone will be with him on that day. And so we are called to go share the gospel now, today. Through our words, through our lives, through our actions, through everything that we do. And we're called to repent and believe today. If you have not trusted in Jesus, I urge you to trust in Christ today. There is one God, Father, Son, Spirit, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the one who's loved you, freed you. He's the one who rules over all things, and he is coming. And if we've not believed in him, we'll be crushed by his staff for all of eternity. In fact, in Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I urge you, believe in Christ today. Do not wait. Believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior of this world. But as we kind of come to an end, we might say, but how do I know he's going to return? You ever wondered that? Like, how do I know? How do I know that Jesus' plans won't be thwarted? How do I know that Jesus' kingdom wins? How do I know Jesus is actually greater than all the Caesars, all the dictators, all, all the other rulers on thrones, every worldly power? How do I know? And so we come to the last point, which is the guarantee of our faith. And if you look at verse 8, in this verse, John's not speaking. John's just writing. And he's writing exactly the words of the Father, because it's the Father who now speaks. And God the Father says, I am the Alpha and Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Like, just, just think about this. This verse is an exclamation mark at the end of this intro. Here's God. Here's the gospel. He's coming again, and I am the Alpha and Omega, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. No one thwarts my purposes, my plans, my promises. God doesn't, notice, he doesn't point to something else outside of himself. Like if you and I were to offer a guarantee for, for something or for some service, we would point to something outside of ourselves that would be large enough for you to go, okay, I can place my confidence in that, so therefore I have, I have um, confidence that you will do what you have said. But what does God do? What does he point to? You want a guarantee? He points to himself. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, and rules over everything in between. And when he says he is, who was, and who is to come, we've already talked about that, but it refers to his eternal rule, self-existent one. You and I require something to make us. This world requires causes to make it and to sustain it. God is the self-existent one, always, eternally existed. All power, all dominion, all sovereignty, no force, no person, and no power can overcome his purposes. Which is why in Daniel 2, he'll say, God is the one who changes times and seasons and appoints kings and removes kings. Nothing is outside of his rule and dominion. He's immutable, which means he's unchanging. His plans and his purposes, his character will never change. So when Jesus says, I will return, 
And every tribe that sees me who does not believe will mourn and well. You can take that to the bank because Christ is saying, look back at all of history. Look at God's word. It testifies to who I am. That I am the self-existent one, the one who rules over all. The one who is sovereign over every single aspect of creation. Over every crow that flies in the sky. Over every hair on your head. He says, I know and I rule over them. So he says, put your trust in God. Then almost as just simply another means of just ending it and repeating what he says. He says, I am the Almighty. So when he said, when you and I begin to question, go, but is God coming? Is God in control? We come back to a verse like this, where God says, who do you compare me with? Whose power rivals mine? Who else are you going to trust in? He is the one who's almighty. God is the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who flooded the earth, parted the Red Sea, controls all elements of nature, gives life, raises the dead, and at the cross defeated sin, death, and Satan. There is no one more powerful. So when we go back to verse 4, grace to you and peace from him. Who? The one who is, who was, who is to come. The seven spirits are before his throne from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. It's this God that gives you grace and peace right now. So whatever you're going through, difficulty in marriage and finances and uh, health, whatever it is, and we can just make a list and it can be long. Jesus is saying, my grace, my peace is sufficient to sustain you. Trust in me every day. Don't get distracted by the things of the world. Trust in me. It's a whole point of, of Revelation. Pulls back the curtain, and we see that's truly God in control. If we're to stand firm, this is the God that we need to behold every day. We don't need entertainment. We don't need mere emotionalism. Or morality, we need God. And men, you need this God. I'm specifically picking on men. Everyone needs him. Just picking on men at the moment. This is who you need to encounter every day as you shepherd your family. Who else or what else are you shepherding them to if you're not beholding this God every day? So I want to encourage you, even as Revelation says, blessed are you who hear and obey what is written in this. Come into God's word every day, knowing that as you come in, God is giving you grace and giving you peace. So as you then shepherd your family, you will shepherd them to this God, that they would know him, and they would love him, and they would know the gospel that he's given. And wives, I encourage you to come into Scripture every day that you would behold this God so you would know how to encourage your husbands. You would know how to love your children. And whether you're single or married, we're all to behold this God every day. Because when we come to church, this is who we encourage us with. Don't tell me just good luck. Lead me to this God. This is who I need to be shepherded with. This is who you need to be shepherded with. So we all need one another, which is why we do table groups and things that we get together throughout the week so we would encounter one another. We would encourage one another. And we would not just wish each other good luck, but we would shepherd them in the truth of Scripture and lead them to the Alpha and Omega the one who has always been the self-existent one, the one who has the power to strengthen and sustain us no matter what trial we are in. So I want to encourage you all, be in the word each day. Because as we come, it's this God who we encounter, who strengthens us, who gives us grace, who gives us peace. So every time you come in, I'll just give you one question you're supposed to ask. You can ask others but one question, whether you're listening to a sermon or you're in the scripture, what does this tell me about God? What's the question we usually start with? What does this have to do with me? 
What does it tell me about me? Which, not a totally terrible question. We get there. But only once we start with, what do I learn about God? Because only when I'm thinking rightly about who God is and what he has done will I have any clue of what it means for me. Jesus has come that we would trust in him because everything else in this world will fade. Everything else in this world will fade. There's nothing in this world that is able to sustain your faith, your life, except Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and I'm almost forgetting what all happens here. I'm going to pray the team's going to come up, and we'll come into communion where we'll celebrate the work of the gospel by our God. Father, Father, we come to you now. You are the Alpha and Omega. You are the one who was, who is, who is to come. You are the Almighty One. You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. He was the faithful witness who did everything you said so that he could accomplish our salvation. So that by grace we would be saved, not by works. And that we'd be given eternal life and made priests in your kingdom to forever live in your presence, worshiping you. And God, I pray that our hearts are made well with that truth. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would just press in on them and ask them, what are they trusting in? What are they trusting in that compares to this God? What is greater than this God? And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that they would trust in you this morning, repent of their sins, and they would believe that your son, Jesus, is the king is the Savior, is the one who died and rose again, is now seated at the right hand of the God and will one day return for the church. God, as we take of communion today, may we do so with great joy knowing that as we take of the bread that represents the body of your son Jesus Christ, that he came incarnate like us, that he would suffer in every way, tempted in every way, so he could provide us salvation. And as we partake of the juice, and we know it symbolizes the very blood of your son Jesus, that he was a faithful witness right to the point of death, but death did not hold him for he is the firstborn of the dead. And may we know that as we take that juice, if we have believed in you, we will rise too in death and suffering and pain and martyrdom will not have the last word, but you and your grace has the last word. In your name, Jesus, amen.